What's up, internet and people of the world? Hope you're all doing well today, by the way. I'm always going to start with that, because I do hope you're doing well. This is the Let's Talk Fantasy podcast with the random bloke in his shed again. Bit late on the uptake on this one. I've unfortunately been a, a little bit ill in the last couple of weeks, and, you know, bad chest and throat and such, and thus couldn't really record any content. So I'm going to try and uh, pump out a couple of extra episodes going forward in the next few weeks. Sort of make up the time again. So... As with last week, I'm going to start with a bit of news that's sort of coming out of the internet at the moment. Obviously, Sony had their big expo recently for the coming forward video games. I'm only going to mention one aspect of it, because if you want to know about all that, you can just quickly Google Sony 2021, blah, 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 blah. You know how Google works. You found this somehow in the depths of the internet. We've now seen the first look at the new God of War. Very fantasy game, you know, mythology, classical mythology. And we've had the first look at some of the other Norse gods, like Thor. Uh, he looks great. He looks like how he does in the Norse mythology. Uh, you've probably seen on social media a lot of people saying, well, he doesn't look blonde like Chris Hemsworth, blah, 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 blah. Look, Chris Hemsworth is a good four, but it's Marvel's four. This is actual four who's like ginger and angry looking and a big boy. Kind of reminds me of like the physique of Eddie Hall. But that's kind of the main thing coming down at the moment. So on that note, I'm going to spank the intro music on. Wasn't that lovely? So anyway, as I said, welcome to episode 2, Warhammer Fantasy of Vampire Counts and Empire's Men. Uh, Today I'm going to do summaries of the Empire faction of Warhammer Fantasy and the Vampire Counts. So, we'll start with the Empire, talk about... I'm not going to talk about all of their leadership they've ever had. I'm going to cover the First Emperor and the Last Emperor. And the same with the Vampire Counts, I'll cover the first one who sort of founded them and who was there at the end, which is actually the same guy, so I'll do a bit about him. Um, it would just take way too long to go into any for real detail. So I'm probably going to dedicate some time in the future to sort of doing my own thing with each of them. And it will all come together in one big harmonious pile of miscellaneous things that you're probably going to get bored of me harping on about. So, moving forward. The Empire. The glorious empire of men. The bastion of order in the world of Warhammer. Uh, For those that don't know a lot about Warhammer, I'll summarise it. It's a clusterfuck where just to be born, you're probably going to get fucked in a really horrific manner. It's a horrible, horrible world. It's probably, other than maybe 40k, because that's kind of half fantasy, half science fiction, it's probably the worst fantasy world you'd ever want to live in. It's horrible. But I'm going to do an episode about chaos um, probably in a couple of weeks, which will be great. Because that will really set the sort of world, they're a big part of it. So, first up, we're going to talk about what the Empire is. And it is the largest faction of order in what is known as the Old World. The main world the story takes place in. So, the Empire is mainly consisting of men. Elves and halflings do live there. There's even some ogres there who act as a mercenaries and labourers and just sort of jobs like that for good pay. It is home to the College of Magic in their capital city, which is the sort of the centre of magic within the sort of good guys. There's no good guys in Warhammer, there's just less, kind of less shitty people. But if anyone's going to be a good guy, it'll be the Empire. So, 
They're home to the College of Magic. They're building wondrous mechanical things, like they have steam tanks, they have cannonry and artillery. It's the centre of civilization, if you will, like the most advanced civilization, other than maybe the dwarfs in technology and the high elves in magic. So it's arguably the most advanced. Now, the Empire isn't one of these things that's always been. Originally, in the old world, the humans were divided into a more tribal fashion. So, they had tribes scattered all over the place, with different motivations, different cultures. Um, there was quite a few of them, so I'm not going to go into details about all of them today. Just sort of the more, the most relevant one, which was the Unberogen, which I'm almost certainly mispronouncing. They're really hard to pronounce. And that is the tribe that birthed the first emperor of mankind. Hmm, 40k uh, vibe there. The first emperor of the empire. And that was uh, Sigmar Unberogen. Now, Sigmar is not just the first emperor. He wasn't just the foremost warrior within the tribes of man, essentially. He had a singular level of drive. A singular ideal of... I want to unite all the tribes into one confederation of force to face the challenges that the world will bring. All of the others just kind of wanted to raid each other and look out for their own interests. And as much as he had his own interests, and I believe he had his own interests, it was important to him that man stood as one unified force in the face of chaos and goblins. I think his name actually translates in Old Reichspiel, which is sort of the older language to the hammer of goblins or something similarly intimidating if you're small and green so he set out on his personal i'm gonna say crusade it's not really a crusade but i like that word to unify the tribes of man and he faced adversity people thought he was an idiot all the other tribes like nah mate don't want it and uh, Sigmar employed his very unique version of diplomacy which is one i can fully get behind which was i have a large hammer now you see this hammer, if you do not join me, this hammer is going to make contact with your skull and then the next man will be given the same option. And as much as he was a charismatic man and some tribes did fall under his sway through his own belief and ideals, the hammer was employed as a, as a marketing technique for his, uh, yeah, his empire. He quite often did just threaten, coerce or just beat people into submission which you know it's a savage time there's bad things going on everywhere there's people killing each other they're raiding they're stealing babies or probably stealing babies i don't know and he unified the tribes into what is the first empire now to rewind myself we're going to talk about the hammer because as you might have noticed it's called warhammer and it is actually sigmar's hammer which is he is also known as the helden hammer he has a magical hammer called galmaraz which was a gift made to him by the uh, the dwarfs and their legendary forging and runecrafting. And it's incredibly powerful. It breaks things. It's kind of like having a really good hammer in real life. You know, you just hit things and they break. That's Galmaraz for you. But when we hit a nail into a bit of wood, he's hitting demons around the face. So, bit of a difference there. However, he, he was just an incredible martial warrior. So after he unifies the Empire... There is some trials and tribulations that oppose him. He has beastmen uh, to deal with. He has hordes of orcs encroaching on his borders uh, every time of day. He even uh, slew the great necromancer Nagash. More of that later, because he's a bastard. And he led the empire in its infancy into a golden age. They say he was just and wise and proper. and He was everything people wanted in an emperor. 
Now, at some point, his greatest challenge would come from Nagash. Well, he had many great challenges from horrible things like demons and such as well. But the one that stuck out to me was with the undead, where he nearly lost half his empire in an invasion of undeath from this great necromancer. And it came to the point where he was forced to fight his foe outside the gates of his capital city of Altdorf. Uh, I've mispronounced it, definitely. I mispronounce everything if that's not apparent by now. Uh, yeah, he fought his foes, he sallied out, hammer in hand, and slew the most powerful necromancer in the world. And there's quite a few of them in Warhammer, so that's quite a feat for a, essentially a human man to do. But although he was human, he was one of these prophesied hero sorts that you get in every fantasy story in existence. That he was born under the twin-tailed comet, and he was prophesied to do great things and magical nonsense... I hope you liked my storyteller voice there. It was satisfying. However, that being said, he proved his mettle by forming an empire under his name. And after his apparent death, becoming a god. For in his passing and disappearance, he was the he became the centre of a church. In that the empire began to worship him as a god. Because I think, I believe they had the logic of, well, no one found his body, so he might not be dead, so he's a god now. So essentially, at the end of his reign, Sigmar looked back fondly at the world he had built with the Empire, and the order he had created, and he was satisfied. And he realised, because he was wise, that his time was done. And it was time for new heads to take the mantle of Emperor, and lead the Empire into further glory. So he departed east, over the mountains at the edge of the world, not even sparing a look back again, and he was gone. However, he was venerated by not just men, but gods themselves, the gods of men such as Ulrich, the war god. And he was risen to his own place in the Pantheon as a divinity for that which he had done. And he became, essentially, Sigmar, the heralded god of man. He is the most heavily followed god to men uh, of the empire especially in the southern empire the northern empire tend to favor their older gods like ulrich who like i just said the god of wolves war and storm or winter might be wolves war in winter that has a better ring to it we'll say it's that i'm making up new canon now apparently and so sigmar would remain upon his seat in his pantheon until his age would come again which would begin in the end times as the final emperor gave his life heroically, beseeching his god, and Sigmar rose again and slew a great foe. And then the Age of Sigmar happened, and we're not talking about that today, so it's irrelevant at this point. But suffice it to say, Sigmar lives on in the Age of Sigmar uh, Warhammer game. Because obviously the game is adapt the, the story and the lore, not the game, the game is a game. The story and the lore is adapted from the tabletop game. So you've got Warhammer tabletop, got Warhammer 40k tabletop and you've got Age of Sigmar tabletop of which the new rule set came out not too long ago I believe I might have to check that out at some point but to be honest I can't really afford Warhammer miniatures so that, that is what it is there unfortunately you know a little bit expensive sometimes but we're going to move on from that and we're going to talk about the last emperor uh, a character I actually I actually really like this character he's a bit like Marmite people either like him or hate him and that is uh, Karl Franz, the final emperor of the Empire of Empiredom. Now, Karl Franz, he didn't perform any miraculous... He didn't become a god. 
He wasn't like a master of everything in the world. Those of you that have played Total Warhammer 2, you know, you might not like him. Um, he was a fair warrior. He wasn't, say, like, top, he wasn't S tier in terms of warriorhood. He was a good fighter. But he led the Empire through a great age of prosperity and peace for a time, until the end of the world happened, in which point he had to lead it through the darkest time it would ever have. Now, we have less lore about Karl Franz because he reigned for a much shorter time. There's huge amounts about Sigmar, but less about Karl Franz. So what I do have, I'm going to cut down to a concise little package uh, so we can move on to the next part of the topic. So, Karl Franz was the Elector Count of Reichland. I'm going to tell you what Elector Counts are in a minute, but just bear with me. And he won by vote. The way an emperor is elected is they are voted in by essentially the high nobility and the church. So they need, I think it's 11 votes. I want to say 11 because, you, you know, you can't get a tie then. And he won by, I think, 8. Which is a good number, and he won against his opponent, Boris Todbringer, who was also an elector count. So, Karl Franz is the elector count of the Reichland, which uh, is where the capital city of Altdorf sits. And he was known to go into battle wielding uh, Galmaraz itself. If he was acting in authority of the Emperor, he would wield Galmaraz. If he was operating in the capacity as a high noble, an elector count, he would actually use the Reichland Runefang, which was his personal enchanted sword. Uh, each of these counts had one of these swords. And he was known to ride into battle on a mighty griffin called Deathclaw, which are incredibly rare beasts in Warhammer, and uh, their aggression is second to none among the men of the Empire. When you see a griffin, you run. Or you, I don't know, just stand there with a spear and hope you've got more dudes with spears next to you. I don't, I've never fought a griffin myself, personally. And nor would I want to. So... Karl Franz opposed in the beginning for him becoming emperor, but eventually he manages to win pretty much everyone around to his side. And it's great, and he's like, hey guys, I'm going to be a great emperor. You, you mate, you, come it, come it. I'm going to congratulate you. And the first thing he did in his act as emperor was smash a dude's head with his hammer. Turned out the dude was a demon in disguise. Who would have thought? Crazy shit happens, you know? And he went on to reign relatively well he fought battles alongside his men leading from the front he ruled with wisdom and brought great prosperity to his people right up until the end times where quite a lot of the warhammer law takes place and the end times is a product of its storytelling unfortunately as great as it is and it's very dynamic and cinematic it is riddled with retcons inconsistencies um it's just too many cooks in one pot, essentially. Too many people wrote canon for the end times, and it, it kind of lost all semblance of what it started as. But we're going to power forward. So, we've talked about Karl Franz's reign a little bit, and now we're going to talk about his end. Now, the end times was a horrible thing, and the whole world was at war, and Karl Franz was at the front of it. He was there with his hammer and his griffin, like, motherfuckers, I'm about to brain y'all. Uh, and he did fight the hordes of chaos itself atop his mighty griffin. However, he would eventually meet his end. Now, the first time he meets his end, he flies Deathclaw up into the clouds to fight an evil undead. And then Deathclaw just bucks off about him. And we're led to believe Karl Franz dies there. And 
I figure at one point that might have actually been his cannon death, because I remember a few years ago that was the only f that was where it ended, but it's not anymore. What happens is he is then found by his allies and comes back, and there's a guy called Volton who does some stuff, but he's not really relevant, and it's all very confusing because it's end times. And Carl Franz is forced to fight the Hordes of Chaos at Altdorf itself, the jewel in his crown, if you will, the capital. At this point, millions have died. Uh, the Empire is on fire. Great powers have risen and fallen, and he is forced to fight a powerful Chaos Champion known as one of the Glotkin Brothers. He's a powerful creature of uh, Nurgle, the God of Plague. And despite his best efforts, unfortunately, Karl Franz is bested by this creature. However, it turns out if there's a magical prophesized comet in the sky, and you call your god for a favour, he might just, might just deliver for you, kids. So Karl Franz, in his final moment, uh, beseeches his god of Boone. And in that moment, uh, the avatar of Sigmar itself appears as Karl Franz and blows up all the demons. Uh, sends the Glockkin back to hell, basically. The realm of chaos is basically hell. Uh, never to return to the world of men. And that is the end of Karl Franz, who, although he was not a magically acceptable man, he didn't do magic for thousands of years, he was just a good man. He was the man the Empire needed and got when it needed it most. A man who led from the front. A man who could rule with wisdom and bring peace and prosperity. But could also don the armour and hammer of the warrior. And bring a war right to your doorstep and cave your head in with that hammer. So, we're going to move along from uh, the Empire's leadership and move on to its structure. So, the Empire consists of a, a bunch of different provinces... Although city-states would be a more, kind of a bit more of an appropriate one. As much as they all follow the emperor, the elector counts, which is sort of the government, uh, kind of rule themselves independently. Uh, there are 11 of these, and one that will come up later, because it's kind of not a province, but is technically part of the empire's land. So we've got Avaland, Hochland, Middenland, Nordland, Ostland, Ostermark, don't get him confused, Reichland, Stirland, Tabakland, Wissenland, and the Mootland. I'm not going to talk about all of them, because we'll be here all day. And I don't want to be here all day. So yeah, that's the names of the provinces. There are other regions, like for the Drakenwald Forest is quite a famous one. But I'm just going to give you a rundown. So each of these is governed by what is known as an elector count. They're kind of a king in their own right who all vote on who they want to be a bigger king, the emperor. Uh, they tend to make their own rules and rule as they see fit. If they disagree with the emperor, they'll let him know. And there have been times in the empire when it shrunk through rebellion, civil war. At one point there were three emperors all vying for control, but... That's what happens when you have a big empire, guys. Like, you know, shit doesn't always go right. Now, each of these is known, as far as the law goes, to wield an enchanted sword named the <laughs> Runefang, insert name in the Her. And they're people of incredible influence and power. And when an emperor dies or is or abdicates, <laughs> I had to remember the word there, the elector counts get together with the leaders of the clergy and they elect a new emperor from among their number, such as Boris Toddbringer, uh, who nearly was elected at the same time as Karl Franz, but then lost because he's not as good, I guess. 
The other one, the province that's not a province, is Sylvania, home of the vampire counts. But we'll, we'll get to that, guys. Don't you worry. You sit there, you make yourself a cup of tea, or a coffee, or whatever it is you do, and relax. We'll get to that. Fear not. So, there are other kinds of governmental body. They have the burgers, who I've never been sure if I'm pronouncing that right. You know, rich merchants who own shit. And just the general feudal society. They're not as hard feudal as, like, the Bretonians, but it's still a feudal society in its own right. And, yeah, that's all I have to say about it at the minute, because I don't want this to drag on for ten hours while I tell you the life and trials of Avaland. Um, in terms of law, the Emperor kind of has absolute power over how law is passed. However, it is well known that elector counts choose to ignore bad laws and just not enforce it, and what are you going to do, mate? Start a war? Nah, bring it. I've got cannons. Well, I was saying that everyone in the Empire has cannons, so it's a bit of a uh, moot point. Anyway, then we're going to move on uh, very quickly. I know that was a very quick section about um, how the Empire is, but that's just a brief rundown of it, guys. And then we're going to move along to the theology, the religion, the faith, the faithful mighty of Sigmar, and yeah, that's the main one. So... Almost the entire empire worships Sigmar to a greater or a lesser degree, as discussed earlier. Fortunately, we can skip a lot of that, because I've already told you about him. See? I, I, I plan ahead for these things, to keep this short. Because, I don't like, you know, you're not going to listen to this for three hours. I mean, I don't ever listen to it for three hours. That would probably drain the soul out of me if I did. So, we're going to talk more about the other gods. So, we've obviously got Ulrich, who is one of what's known as the Old Pantheon. The true gods of the old world that have been worshipped since man first learned. Oh, there's things up in the sky that I don't understand. Better be a god's fault, I guess. So, we've got Ulrich, who is mainly worshipped in the Northern Empire. However, he was kind of usurped by Sigmar. There's theories he might be Cain, which is an elven god, and there's theories that Cain might be Corn, and Corn is a Cain. You see what I mean about Warhammer gets convoluted. It gets very complicated very quickly. If you go down into that rabbit hole, you're not seeing Wonderland for shit. So, I'm just going to real rapid fire quick throw you some names, and there's going to be a test on this later. We've got Ishia, the goddess of agriculture and birth. Um, so it's kind of your traditional goddess of life, really, uh, that you see in a lot of other pantheons. So the Norse equivalent, I believe, would be a Freya. Uh, that's something with Warhammer. A lot of their gods you can associate with gods from different mythologies. So we've also got Tal, who is kind of the god of the wilderness and the forest. And I think the Wood Elves venerate him more than anyone. I could be wrong on that, though. I haven't done a lot of reading about the Wood Elves lately. Then we've got, you know, Manan, whose name I just had to quickly get up and read. Because I was like, it can't be Manan, can it? And it is, in fact, Manan or Mafanan or something along those lines. I lose track of kind of how to pronounce things a lot of the time and my notes are pretty shitty it's normally just talk about stuff uh he's the god of the sea he's your poseidon figure if you will and then you've got more and he's the last one i'm going to mention and he is the god of death get it? more mortis mort you know french death ah see connections you can always connect these things with fantasy because every word is based on another word um so yeah, each of these gods have their own place in the old pantheon, and they uplifted Sigmar in his time. Now, over time, the worship of these gods has diminished greatly. In the southern I mean, you can worship whatever god you want, as long as it's not a bastard god. So, a chaos god, or just a bastard god. And 
the Empire's pretty chill about it. Although, you know, if you're a heretic, they will send the witch hunters after you. And the witch hunters are kind of, you know, the angry step-parents who find your porn stash. They're going to go in there knowing you've done something wrong. They're going to slap you down and probably set you on fire for it. Although if you had someone who did that for finding your porn stash, I'd probably deal with that. Now, your witch hunters are kind of your your first line of defence against the forces of evil and chaos. They go around looking for any sign that something bad's going down and they put a bullet in your brain because they're very ruthless to the point where if you're in a village of, say, a few hundred people and the mayor of the village turns out to be a chaos cultist, they'll burn that village down with zero hesitation. And the worst that'll happen to them is a pat on the back and a slap on the wrist. They're there for that purpose of no chaos. Bad. Um, badness. Now, the priests within the Empire tend to be more warrior than priests. They're more like battle clerics, if you will. If you're a tabletop player, battle cleric, sphere of war. Boom. And most of them worship Sigmar. They build hammers because held and hammer again. Hammers are a big thing for them. And they also go out into the world and destroy evil as they find it. They're led by a man named Volkmar the Grim, the Ark Theologist, I believe is his title. Uh, and his name is, as it suggests, he's a very grim fellow who likes to kill things. I mean, who doesn't? It's Warhammer. The world is war. Speaking of war, though, that little divergent here, the Empire's military. Now, the Empire's strength in Total War Two players, you'll know this, Combined arms warfare. Their infantry are oh, the human dudes with swords and shields and spears. It's not bad, but I wouldn't want to fight a dragon with it. But they've also got loads of guns and cannons and explodey things, and that is where their strength lies. Their raw numbers, you know, the Empire's army is hundreds of thousands, if not millions of men strong at its highest. But it excels in artillery and ranged warfare. In fact, the city of Nuln in Wissenland is famous for its artillery foundries, where the great cannon and rocket batteries of the Empire are produced. So, I'm going to go from the bottom up. I'm going to talk about swordsmen. The dudes of a sword and shield. They poke you a little bit. It's the, it's the standard. But, you know, they're hard bastards anyway. You know, they, they send out phalanxes of men with spear and shield. Men with halberds. They... They shake up their formations. They've got companies of militia. Uh, the three companies, I want to say they're called. My notes literally say, I know this shit, and I'm beginning to doubt that now. <laughs> but when you get to the sort of more experienced troops, you get the Empire Great Swordsmen, who are renowned to be the elite force within the Empire, the elite infantry. You're so good, you don't need a shield, because you just need a bigger sword. Because bigger is better when it comes to swords up from that you kind of have the knights the knightly orders the reichsguard and their mounted forces with lance and sword and mace now not all of their mounted forces are this way inclined towards heavy armor and heavy armaments some of them just wield pistols some have rifles some have grenade launchers i think i had a couple of those models when i was a kid actually which was nice but the most devastating force the Empire puts on the field is the Demogriff Knights, the hardened veteran cavalrymen that ride. They're not real griffins, they're demigriffs. So they're smaller than a griffin and they can't fly. But 
they are just as ferocious as their larger flying cousins. They will claw into everything in their way, while the men sit atop them with lance or halberd spearing foes down into the mud. But that's not the Empire's true strength. Their strength, like I said, is their combined arms and their ingenuity. They had a great inventor at one point in the uh, history of the lore. His name was Leonardo de something. It wasn't da Vinci, but it was clearly based on that. It was Leonardo who invented the triumph that was the steam tank. They had tanks. Now, they've only got eight of them. But you know when the tank comes rumbling towards you and you're a dude of a sword, you're probably going to have a bad time. Amongst that, they've got, you know, your standard mortars that fire explosives. They've got you know, a huge cannon that, you know, tear through things. And then they've got the Hellblaster rocket batteries. Again, Total War players, you know, come say hello. You, you, get, you got me on this one. You know what I'm talking about. And their more recent R2 invention, Hellblaster Volley Gun, which is basically just a rotating cannon that fires like a really slow, really heavy machine gun. And the last thing I'm going to mention that they wield is the Luminarch of Heesh. H-Y-S-H. So if I pronounce that wrong again, guys, I, it's, it's going to happen. I'm shit with words. And that is a basically a laser that fires lasers at people. If you want to know how it works, I'm going to tell you what I tell my D&D players, it, which is, it's fucking magic, stop asking questions. It fires a laser, what more do you want in a fantasy setting? Now, the problem the Empire does have is they've got these great things like tanks. I love tanks. But the guy who invented them died, took his secrets with him, a bit like Leonardo da Vinci, weirdly enough. And then they forgot how to make them, which is my biggest pet hate. How do you forget to make something? Like, just take it apart and put it back together until you get it, I guess. So... They've got eight of them. They had 11, but, you know, it's a valuable resource, and that's their biggest weakness. If they could build loads of them, they'd probably win every war they fought. But that is your brief rundown of the Empire. But, you know, watch what I say, because I will probably do a few about specific topics within the Empire and within what we're going to talk about next, which is the Vampire Counts. But first, I'm going to go grab a wee beverage, and I hope you do as well. Enjoy the background music. You know, take a minute. Just... Just take a minute to relax, everyone. Whatever stresses the world is bringing your way, just let it go for a minute. You're going to sit here, we're going to chat about some Warhammer together, and hopefully you're going to enjoy yourself. Alright, so, part two. And we're back, I've got another cool, refreshing beverage. Now, it wasn't much of a break, that was just your opportunity to pause so you don't miss anything. So, I'm going to try and summarise where vampires came from in 60 seconds. So there was once an empire called Nehekara, and there was a right bastard called Nagash, who was a necromancer. He was really good at it, to the point where all of the other necromancers learned from his books. He wrote 10 called the books of Nagash. He invented an elixir called the Elixir of Life, which would give him longevity, immortality, in terms of agelessness. Some other bastards, who were also Nehekaran, did not like that he had a monopoly on making people immortal. So they decided what they were going to do, is they were going to get another dude called Arkhan the Black, who was going to make his own version, and it was shite. And someone got poisoned, some poison got mixed in, and it made a really horrific version, and thus vampires were created. Now, one of the first of these vampires was a man known as, I'm going to try and pronounce this one right, Vashanesh. And now we're going to slow down again, because I think 60 seconds may have passed very soon. And he would later be known as Vlad von Karstein, the progenitor of the vampire counts, the original. Now, he and Nagash, and many of these characters deserve their own individual lore things podcasts so we're going to get to them another day but 
Suffice it to say, he is extraordinarily powerful. He's powerful magically with necromancy, and he's a powerful warrior. He's actually probably one of the most unkillable bastards in the world of Warhammer. He is given a ring that essentially allows him to come back from the brink of death as many times as he wants, but it binds him to his Lord Nagash's will. Eventually he decides he's not a fan of that. So, after a lot of wibbly-wobbly fuckery happens, he decides he's going to go off and form his own land. And he meets a lovely young woman named Isabella, who later becomes his wife. Now, he set up shop in Sylvania, which is, like I said earlier, kind of a province of the Empire, because it was. But him and his wife turn it into an undead wasteland, and essentially carve out their own kingdom for their own vampiric and undead kind. Bit about vampires in Warhammer. They have the traditional red first, if you will. They like to suck blood out of shit. But they're not, for the most part, with exceptions, they're not mindless animals. Some of them actually get by without drinking people's juice. People juice. Get some today. So, much like with the Empire section, we're going to talk about how they, how their leadership first, and that is Vlad von Karstein himself. Now, he travelled to the lands of the Empire where, like I said, he met his lovely, beautiful wife, Isabella, and he was able to infiltrate her court. Her, her and her father were dukes, I believe. I believe her father was a duke who had taken ill. Now, through his own intellect, machinations, and his own guile, really, he seduced Isabella, and they actually do love each other, which is really odd to think about in vampires, that they do truly love each other, but hey, it's Warhammer, things are different sometimes. And he gave the woman that he was attracted to what is known as the Blood Kiss, which was to turn her into a vampire much like himself, and they formed the first of the Von Karstein dynasty. I'm going to say dynasty because they're so long-livid that... There's only like three actual vampire counts of the Von Karstein family. They just date back for ages because they're basically immortal. And with that, he takes Sylvania, an imperial province, with actually a level of legal legitimacy in regards to he's married a woman who would inherit that land anyway. So from there, the Von Karstein family itself kind of seeks to topple the empire, to make it their own. But they're also cunning and smart, and they realise that they can't beat the Empire. They can't fight it in an all-out war. So what they normally seek to do is sit inside their little domain and do some shit. Weirdly enough, as much as the land is an undead wasteland, it's not all undead. People do live there. And they do pay a tax. Oh yes, they do. The tax is to give up a loved one, or someone, or whatever, to be food. It's essentially, if I was to compare it to something... I'd say the Castlevania uh, animation on Netflix, what Carmilla wanted to do, spoiler, in that she wanted to set up essentially a giant pen and turn humans into cattle. And that's essentially what the Von Karsteins did. They turned humans within their domain into cattle, just to feed upon. But people live there, and they do eke out an existence amongst these vampires who traditionally, especially among the Von Karsteins, are very charismatic and very handsome and just great in general. They're just lovely, lovely dudes when they're not, you know, trying to kill everyone you know and love because they're hungry. But to get away from the tangent I just went on and go back to uh, Vlad von Karstein, he has so much lore 
it's really hard to sift through and summarise it, so I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to cut to his end, which is he during the end times, he tries to form alliances with the Empire, and he nearly succeeds, uh, and then does succeed, and then doesn't, and again, end times. However, it all comes to a head in a, a final battle, where he must actually fight the woman that he loves, Isabella, because they've gone their separate ways, they're having a marital argument, but he doesn't want to kill her, he just wants her to not bring about the end of the world. So, in a final act of devotion to her, he gives her his ring. You know the one I mean? The one where, you know, he can't die? He's died so many times, it's unreal, but he always gets back up again. He's like Mike Tyson in his heyday, you just can't keep a good Karstein down. So, gives her the ring, and throws them both off some battlements where he is impaled through the heart and finally dies a last death and his missus manages to survive and go on to do some other shenaniganry but he's a really good character he's going to get his own podcast because he is just I, I, there's no way of summarising how much lore he has there's just too much so we're going to move on to how they govern themselves now the term vampire count is held by few because it just brings a lot of ball ache, if I'm being honest, because the minute you're in that position of power, everyone wants to know who you are, and preferably put a stake through your chest or throw you into a river, because some vampires can't cross running water. What GW did was they took a lot of the vampire mythologies and what they can and can't do, and put it into a really big, small, super condensed ball of pain. And that's essentially how they run their vampires. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of, you know, mythology and folklore about vampires. And it's good that they bring that to the to the fore, which is great. But normally they have their own nobility who are always vying for power. Now, when they're not vying for power, they're living very comfortable lifestyles and just seeking to enhance that comfort. You know, they have hedonism that would make Slanesh blush sometimes, which I'm just going to quickly say. Chaos does not like vampires. Because blood for the blood god is <laughs> for the blood god, not for you to drink, fuckers. Oh, you're immune to every disease? Well, Nurgle doesn't like you. Oh, you're basically just dead people who can never change. Sinch is out, and Slanesh just doesn't like them in general on principle, because they're bastard people. And Slanesh is all about that hedonism, even though they kind of are too. So, they don't get on with chaos at all, which is kind of their unifying point of the Empire. So, moving along. As much as they have a unified leader in a vampire count like Vlad von Karstein or Manfred von Karstein, who was the final vampire count, or sort of probably the most famous one other than Vlad, they self-govern in their lands. And these lands, they're not just populated by skeletons, they're populated by people. Someone's got to grow the crops, someone's got to make the wine, someone's got to be food. And they kind of take the Empire's elector counts to an extreme. Right? The elector council kind of normally listen to their boss, whereas they just sort of do their own thing and ignore everyone else. So, within the Vampire counts, there's also necromancers. And they don't always work for vampires. They sometimes do, they sometimes don't. They have their own agendas. They're not necessarily beholden to vampires. They're just other bastards who like corpses for some reason. I mean, I get it. An infinite army of dead people is always handy, but... It's just inconvenient for a lot of other people, really, isn't it? I think you'd agree. It's just... Imagine the smell. Imagine the smell that would emanate from that army. It'd be horrific. So, 
that's there's not a lot to it. They're very feudal. Some of them they have knightly orders, like the Blood Dragons, I think they're called, and they're an elite knightly order of vampires, and they they basically have a very similar feudal to society to what some real historical societies had, like the Holy Roman Empire of history, where it was there is an emperor. We're kind of going to listen to him, but probably not. Let's have a little civil war to settle who's boss. Because the vampires respect one thing above all. Strength. And they will follow that which has the greatest strength. All the while waiting to put a knife in the small of your back. Or the stake in your chest. Because you're a vampire. So, there's no unification. In fact, in the end times, some of them go to follow Nagash. Some of them go to follow the Empire. Some of them follow chaos, even though they hate chaos. Uh, I don't get it, but it is what it is. So, there's no single leader, but when Vlad von Karstein walks in the room, everyone stands. And you're not going to believe how quick these two sections are going to be. Religion. They don't fucking have any. And the vampires, they worship themselves, because they're arrogant. Fucking... Okay, great. <laughs> Government. We govern ourselves, because we're the best. Fucking great. How easy is that to summarise? So we're going to skip all of that and go straight to... How do they fight, though, random bloke in a shed? Or whatever I call myself when I'm in this shed. Well, they just throw hordes of shit at you, really. Think about a zombie apocalypse. It's basically what they do. So, were you, humble listener, to gear yourself up for war, you take up your battle hammer and your symbol of... I don't know, Tyr, Sigmar, Odin, pick one. And you go, I'm going to fuck some vampires up today. You're going to fight a few thousand zombies, maybe some peasant levies from their lands, because, you know, again, that, that could happen. A couple hundred thousand skeletons, a few ghouls, uh, a few crypt horrors, which are like, you know, sort of 15 foot tall, I think. Big boys, kind of like, they're, I'd say they're, like, they're equivalent to like a troll. They're about the same size. Then, you know, you get through all that and you're a bit battered. You're like, oh, that was a good workout. And you're going to power through that and say, oh, some cavalry over there, that's a bit weird. Didn't know zombies could ride horses. And you're going to get hit by some black knights who are knights, who are bastards. Undead knights, yeah. Then you're like, oh, those are red armour. That's also quite weird. And boom, blood dragons. Some of the best heavy horsemen the old world has ever seen with fucking millennia of experience. Some of them date back to Nehekara, which... I believe in the lore is something between two and five thousand years before the main setting of the game. And then you get through that. You're battered. You're bleeding. You're like, cool, that can't get any worse. And you see hordes of shit in the sky. And you're like, oh, it's only bats. That's not too bad. And then they get a bit closer. And you're like, that's a, that's a pretty big bat, actually. And you're hit by Vargais. Like, 20 feet long bats. That's a bit of an exaggeration. They're not 20 feet long, but they're... They're a bit chunky, look like about the size of a horse. I'm guesstimating sizes, by the way, just based on images compared to other things, because I think that's more fun than looking up the exact measurements. And then you're like, well, good thing I brought me handgun, because I shot a few of them out of the sky, and now I'm time, ready to move on with my day. And a Vargolf appears, which is essentially a giant running bat, the size of an elephant i'm guessing and that's going to come at you and be swinging and throwing you around and that itself was once a vampire that's sort of went Do you know what i don't like this whole conscious thought thing i just want to kill shit and that's what they do now say you've taken a halberd to its heart you're stood there you're like man 
I feel good about myself. I've done a good work today. And then the sky goes dark. The sun is blotted out as a large shadow overtakes you. You look to the skies only to hear a bestial roar in the night. And you realise, ah, oh, fuck. They have a dragon. Shit. At which point you feel two bites on your neck and you are drained of your human body juice by it today. And, yeah. So the vampires, <laughs> they don't come at you with a little bit of force. They come at you with hordes of undeath. Now, you've probably noticed I haven't talked about types of vampires. And that's because, quite frankly, like most things, it's going to take too damn long. It's episode two. So, going forward, I'm probably going to talk about them on their own and do their own thing because that makes more sense. This is a brief rundown. I mean, what is it? We spent 20 minutes on each with just me not really getting a lot said a lot of the time. And, yeah, that's what they're going to come at you with. Lots of pain, lots of death. There's going to be necromancers there raising things that you've already killed. There's going to be vampires there biting people. Some of them are going to be great warriors. Some are going to be great wizards. There's going to be monsters. It's going to be a terrifying experience for everyone involved. But, you know, hold faith. Put a stake for its heart. If you kill the vampire, you kill the army. Because traditional rules of fantasy, if you cut the head off the snake and the snake dies, apparently. Now, you may have noticed I really rushed through vampires there. And there is a reason for that. And that's because as much as the Empire has huge amounts of lore and it's going to get its own content on its own, I find vampires really interesting in general, as a rule. I always... When I got to Warhammer 1, I played Vampire Counts because I just love that faction. So, they're going to get their own thing much, much sooner than the Empire. So, the next episode I do is going to be probably... I think I'm going to do Creatures of Celtic Folklore because that's something very close to me and it's something I really like reading about. So, we're going to do that next, but... I promise within the next couple of months, there'll be a full something about different kinds of vampires in Warhammer. Maybe in the next sort of two or three months, depending on, you know, shit and how much I can read. Because like I've said before, I work a full-time job while doing this. I don't have the most time in the world. But that all round us off now. We're done talking about vampires. We're going to take another moment. I'm just going to catch our breath, guys. I'm going to have a little sip of my delicious beverage. Gonna see what my dog's up to next to me. Oh, I can hear her. She's sneaking around. And we're gonna do a little little D&D story. And I'm gonna tell you. So a couple of friends of mine, they're in a Warhammer campaign. Now, they're dealing with an incredible threat within the Empire. It's a man named uh, Hans, who is a secret worshipper of the Chaos God Zeech who is trying to falsely accuse a man of being a chaos cultist to draw attention away from himself. However, this man Hans also happens to be the judge of the court case. So, our party goes in there and tries to make a case whatever faction want to follow. The party is actually divided. One of them uh, thinks the man is fully guilty, the other one thinks it's not a time to make false accusations. Now, one of my players is playing a dumb character of 20 intellect, and I, I, I don't know why. It's actually a game I ran back when when. So, 
This character, he makes a really compelling argument for the innocence of this lord who's being accused of following chaos. And it was really well done. He rolled really high on persuasion. And it was going to work out fine. And then for some reason, he just starts saying dumb things in the court. At which point, a wizard silences him magically. So he stops fucking up the court, basically. The court takes a recess. And eventually they're allowed back in where his silence spell is lifted. To test this, he doesn't say anything, he doesn't make any noise, he just farts really, really, as he describes it, really, really loud. I asked him to make a performance check and he fucking nailed it. So, he farts a musical tune in the middle of a very serious court case where he is very quickly uh, removed. What can we learn from this? Guys, it's all well and good farting in court. I mean, I chuckled, but... Actions have consequences, and they may be slightly amusing or not. This one had bad consequences further down the line. But that's a story for a different day. So, everyone, that will round out this episode, and we'll hopefully get another one up this week, just to balance out missing a couple of weeks of content. If you do want to get in touch, that is uh, letstalkfantasy93 at gmail.com. I wish it didn't have 93. I'm going to keep harping on about that. And I hope you all are well out there. I hope you enjoy this, all four of you, and have a good time. Enjoy whatever you're doing in life, and cheerio.